0: Alright, so we have here an implicit question. Do you think of yourself as wise and understanding? Or do you see somebody else and think of them as wise in understanding? and understanding? What we're given here are marks or notes to determine whether that wisdom, that understanding, is earthly or whether it is from above. Now, for yourself, what I want to say is this. First and foremost, The way you check whether your wisdom and understanding is earthly or whether it is heavenly is to judge what you think and compare it to the Scriptures. Period. In a sentence. Now, at the same time, it is possible for us to think that we believe what the Scriptures teach and to be deceived. And so, if we see ourselves bearing the fruits of the flesh, if we see ourselves to be causing destruction in great ways, we need to pause and consider what is it that I actually believe? What presuppositions am I operating out of? What is it that is producing this? What falsehood dwells within me that produces such fruit as this? For other people, we cannot read their minds. For other people, we cannot read their minds. And so we hear their profession, but we also must examine what they do and to see if it's a hypocritical profession. And this is not only true for membership, which is the focus of the beginning of the book of James, but as we pass the center of the chiasm and deal with the confession of faith in terms of whether it's credible, there's also now a confession of maturity. I'm wise. I'm mature. I should be your teacher. Make me your governor. Right? That push, the desire to rule, there is a terrifying tendency of the bramble bush to desire to rule the trees. And so we should be careful We should be careful to not have false prophets, to not have useless men as governors. And so we carefully guard you who nominate and elect, and also at the same time those who lay hands on need to be careful in that process. The other thing is this. As we look at this, we can always apply it to others. We can judge others. We can judge the the government that's performed by others. We can examine nominees. We can look at men and see are they people who should be nominated. But first and foremost, men, take these marks and apply them to yourselves. And consider, how useful am I? What am I doing? How am I living? What do I believe? What am I accomplishing with my life? You are a vapor. And you will dissipate faster than you think. Redeem the time. The days are evil. So be useful. Now in addition to that, we also have to consider this, women, you can hinder your man from usefulness, and so I'm going to review in part here also the qualifications of a deacon's wife, because the qualifications of a deacon's wife are the qualifications of an elder's wife, and the qualifications of a deacon's wife help you to understand how to be a useful helpmeet. Tonight we'll also happen to be going over Proverbs 31, so double dose there. So what we'll be looking at is that usefulness. So, let's carry on to page 2. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. There's a desire to receive legitimate honor. Men should desire legitimate honor. They should seek to be honorable and seek to receive the honors owed to the honorable. It's a good thing. Man with no ambition is a boy. We do not want man boys. We want men. We want men with ambition to do things, to conquer, to overcome, to rule. The problem is not ambition. There is a desire, there is a good desire, a godly ambition, that is to be encouraged in men. There is also the tendency towards self-seeking in men. That is the natural tendency. Self-seeking does not mean that you just simply pursue your self-interest. That's inherent in the design of rationality in men. We naturally are going to seek our self-interest, and that's good. The law of God is based upon that over and over again. Jesus says, This thing is better than that thing. Do you want a reward? Do this thing, right? He he appeals to, the law appeals to. God repeatedly commends the seeking of true self interest. Christianity is egoistic. It is about the pursuit of your true self interest. The ego, the I, you, number one, me, my. Right. You should be seeking your own interest. And in seeking your own interest, there's a true way to do that and there's a wrong way to do that. The true way to do that is to take into account other people's interests. To love your neighbor and to love God. The love of God and the love of neighbor are the way that you advance your own interests. That's what the law teaches us. That's the wisdom that is from heaven. The wisdom of the world says that other people are disposable and God is a figment of your imagination. So forget them and will to power. Right? Those are opposed to each other. We are not to be altruists and to think that if we consider our own interests that we're sinning. It is wrong. If you don't consider your interests, you're a fool. If you don't consider other people's interests, you're a fool. If you don't consider the glory of God, you're a fool. There is a narrow way described by the law with the goal of the glory of God. You have to have the doxological focus, concern for the glory of God, and you have to apply the law, the regulated principle of life. The two of them together, that is the wisdom from heaven for the good life. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. The idea of meekness... Comes down to the controlling of strength. Men ought to be strong. They ought not, be, they ought not to be chaotic in the use of their strength. They need to be strong. The glory of young men is their strength. Wise men, their glory is their wisdom. Right? The older men should be wise. And so he who glories, let him glory in this, that he knows and understands me. So God tells us in Jeremiah 9. And so that wisdom is powerful. That wisdom is powerful. It has the ability to cause powerful change and so that is a type of power and it requires meekness to avoid being destructive it requires a self-control you don't say everything you think of you don't do everything you have an impulse to do you control yourself you control your tongue that has been the emphasis out of what we're coming out of in James so the meekness of wisdom involves the control of the tongue and the control of the rest of the body and that control of the body is going to look like this. You look for good works to do. And the control of the tongue is you're going to not seek to usurp. So if you have true wisdom, manifest it by controlling yourself and doing useful service and not trying to grasp for power. Get power by working. Verse 14, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Right? Don't claim to be wise. Don't boast in your wisdom and then manifest a bitter covetousness for anybody who has a lawful gift. Don't just tear down everybody's gifting. Don't tear down everybody's office. Don't tear down all the achievements of other men. And don't simply seek to climb over them to get up the greasy pole. To climb to power Smashing in the faces of others with your feet is not a fulfilling path. The meekness of wisdom is displayed in a willingness to serve in less public ways, less honoring ways before serving in the more honored way. If someone wants to be viewed as wise, let him work in ways other than teaching before he teaches in public. That doesn't mean you should restrain your tongue from being able to spread wisdom in private conversations. You should speak wisdom. Hospitality is a private ministry wherein truth can be communicated. You can give material blessing and you can communicate words. Every man is king of his own castle and in his castle he ought to be hospitable. And when he's hospitable, he ought to speak profitable words. Let him give evidence not only that he can speak the words that have been adopted by the church in accord with Scripture, but also let him show that he can walk by the rule adopted by the church in accordance with Scripture. Last time we talked about the mature man. The mature man has attained to what the church has attained to. There's a level of maturity of the church in history. And when you have attained to the level of maturity that the church has attained in history, you then are mature, and you are fit to help to gain new ground. So serve and seek to mature. When you are mature, then continue to serve. If you desire an office, you desire a good thing. And then, hopefully there will be opportunity for public service that is more honored more public. The idea of bitter envy, the word for envy is actually just the same as the word for zeal or jealousy. And the point is a zeal that is wrongly placed or disordered. The desire for something that's not yours or an undue zeal for something, misplaced, disordered, valuing. And so what happens is like, like I talked about a little bit earlier, this idea that bitter envy looks like coveting for the gains and honors of others, and so you tear it down. One of the ways that you can show the meekness of wisdom is honest praise for real gifts and real accomplishments. Legitimate honor for lawful stations. Self seeking. There's a desire, generally, to get the most right now, to take things that we may not even be fit for, right? And if you try to get something to advance yourself immediately, it can be self-destructive. There's a a path, right? There's a tendency. Proverbs talks about, for example, the the quick acquisition of wealth can result in self-destruction. Well, wealth is a blessing. But the quick acquisition of wealth for the fool results in the fool indulging foolishness if you're not ready to rule, and you rule, that will harm you. And so there's a value to going through the process and seeking to serve well in lower places. Godly ambition looks like the willingness to be humble and meek at short-term costs in order to advance in the long term. This is closely related to the Protestant virtue of delayed gratification. This is sort of manifested in, in entrepreneurial activities, for example. You take resources and time and you invest them to do things with the hope that it will bear fruit. Evangelism does that. You you take the word of God and you seek to tell people who are your enemies things that they are going to hate, and you take abuse from person after person after person, and then there's fruit. There's the rule over material things, and there's the rule with the spiritual. And in the private ministry, you can do both. You can invest your time and money to try to make money, and you can invest your spiritual talents in the effort to try to make disciples. Those both bear fruit, and they involve delayed gratification. The idea of boasting is a type of lie against the truth. You think that you're wise, but you will not show that you're wise. You think you're fit, but you will not show your fitness by service. That is the thing that we all need to be aware of. Somebody wants to have power without service, without demonstrating the meekness of wisdom. You need to be aware of that. Service should be viewed as the right use of authority. And the right use of authority should be met with the recognition and honor that's owed to it and the encouragement to take on additional responsibility, authority, power, resources. Verse 15. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. That list right there, earthly, sensual, demonic, uh, the word sensual is root psyche. It's having to do with the idea of the the soul. And so you could say uh, world, flesh, devil. That's what the list is. It's world, flesh, devil. Okay, So, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it comes from the triple enemy. Wisdom of the type warned against comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It does not come from heaven. So we have signs to look at for teachers. Do they sound orthodox in their public and private speech? That's the control of the tongue. And do they show orthopraxy, right, practice in their public and private lives in a blameless way? Nobody's sinless except for Christ. But is there a blamelessness? Is there, a, is there a, an outpouring of sort of serious covenant-breaking or criminal-type sins? That would indicate that the person is not fit for rule. Is there an unwillingness to resolve conflict? person is not fit for rule. So this idea of looking for blamelessness, a willingness to resolve conflicts, and a period of time, a year at least, where you are not displaying grievous covenant-breaking, criminal-type behavior. Verse 16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Because we have bitter envy and selfish ambition. These show that a man has confusion and every kind of evil in his soul. And that's what he's going to sow. If he's in leadership, that's what he's going to sow. He's going to plant that. And that's going to give the combative fruit of unrighteousness. The strife-inducing fruit of unrighteousness. If he does not have control over his tongue, as shown by a lack of willingness to serve in other ways, because if you can bridle your tongue, you can bridle your whole body, right? So you should be willing to serve in other ways. Then he will bring confusion and every evil thing into the church by bad teaching and bad example. If he does show control over his tongue by serving in humble ways, then he evidences that he will bring order and good things to the church by guarding the church with good government and good teaching. So how does that manifest itself? We're going to have an explanation now. So the wisdom that's from above is first pure and then peaceable. And it gives us a list. And I think the remaining list is an explanation of peaceableness. Okay, so that's how I'm going to present it. Wisdom from above is first pure. The word there can also be translated as holy. You know it's closely related. This idea of the not mixing of good and evil, this the separation. So it's pure. It prioritizes purity or holiness over peace. It's first pure, and then it's peaceable. It is willing to wage war for the sake of holiness. It is not willing to compromise. It is not willing to have admixture. It will not allow idolatry. It will not allow false doctrine. It will not allow usurpers. It will not allow, it will not allow holiness to be compromised. But then it's peaceable. And the emphasis here is on the peaceableness. The holiness is listed first in priority, but then there's peaceableness and a long explanation of the components of peaceableness. And the reason is because this peaceableness helps us to see whether the zeal is a true zeal for holiness or a zeal for self, a zeal for selfish ambition. Remember in Proverbs, it talks about fervent lips and how those fervent lips, if they are used for evil, it's like lead monoxide, which looks like silver. Okay, silver dross like silver dross it's like a, a pot covered in silver dross it looks like silver but it's just lead monoxide and it's got clay inside so you have to determine which type of zeal is this zeal is a good thing what kind of zeal is it if the zeal is accompanied with peaceableness that's a very valuable marker if it's just peaceableness and no zeal that's a very valuable marker that this is a people pleaser There's the people pleaser with no zeal. And there's the zealous one who is selfishly ambitious. And there's the zealous one who is peaceable. You want leaders who are zealous and peaceable. And women, let's admit this, you want men that are zealous and peaceable. You don't want to be led by somebody with no zeal. And you don't want to be led by somebody who is not peaceable. Men, this is what other men respect. If you don't have any zeal, nobody respects you. And if you're not peaceable, nobody likes you zealous, and peaceable. The wisdom from above is first holy, and then it's peaceable. Being peaceable could also be translated as as a peace bringer. It's peaceable. It's something that brings peace. It brings peace in the narrow and the broad sense. Hopefully you remember last week the idea of peace in the narrow sense is just the ending of strife. But in the broad sense, peace is blessedness. Right? The idea of shalom is having a broad sense of blessedness. And in, in the Greek, it's arene. Okay, so shalom in Hebrew, arene in the Greek. Peace. And that peace is the extent of having blessedness rather than cursedness in the broad sense. And so men who are leaders, who are peaceable, who are bringers of peace, are going to bring in a general blessedness. And that includes the reduction of strife. So peaceableness is shown by FBA case Now you've heard me talk about that. If you haven't read William Perkins' Christian Moderation or Christian Equity, that's the Greek word. He wrote a book on that word. He wrote a book on that word. It's a little, little book. It's like 30 pages, but it's a Puritan 30 pages. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a good little book. And in it, he takes a little verse out of Philippians and says, Let your moderation be known to all men. The word moderation there is that same Greek word, a case. Now, the idea of moderation. How do you show your gentleness or moderation to all men? Is it by having a really easy life and then being happy? Is everybody like, wow, that guy, lots of self-control there. Everything works out for him. Doesn't get angry. And that, is, that is not something that reveals the presence of moderation in your soul. Doing hard things and keeping your peace. Maintaining your cool. Keeping your composure in the midst of that. Getting punched in the mouth and smiling. Right, These are the things that show your moderation to all men. So if you can govern yourself in the midst of difficulty, if you have a zeal to do hard things, you do them and you smile into the storm, that makes your moderation or your insanity known to everybody. And so that ability to control yourself when you're doing hard things, that is shown. And so service involves doing things at cost, things that are difficult, things that are frustrating, things with low immediate reward, and that helps to manifest self-control. Durability in it. Carrying on. Grinding it out. The next thing, besides being gentle or moderate, is being willing to yield. And that idea of being willing to yield, I think a better translation, is not, it's not just that you're willing to give in. right? It's being willing to give in when there's a reasonable basis. Somebody comes and asks you for something... And you're willing to give it if it's reasonable to give. This idea, I think, could be better communicated with you're easy to approach. You're easy to entreat. Do people, like, regret coming and talking to you? Do people kind of look at the possibility of coming and talk to you and kind of start grinding their teeth and their stomach starts to churn? If you're hard to approach, then this doesn't, you don't have this. The idea of being easy to approach, easy to entreat. Can someone come and talk to you and expect that you're going to respond reasonably? Being full of mercy. This is manifested in a wise charitable interpretation. Not Pollyanna rose-colored glasses, right? Everybody everywhere is stupid and everybody everywhere is annoying and everybody everywhere is really bad at everything. Okay, let's just be real. It's reality. It's the way things are. It's frustrating frustrating. So let's not walk around pretending like everybody's great and amazing and wonderful and delightful to be with. Right? That's not the case. That's not the case. Most people you avoid. Is this true? You look at your contact list and the phone and if most of those people called you, you'd go, ugh. Right? Because they're not easy to approach. They're not fun to deal with. They don't give you a lot. There's, they're not great. So the point is not that you have to go around pretending like everything's amazing. Right? The point is that when you can... You don't interpret things in the worst way. When you can, you interpret things in a positive way, and you don't hold it against people. And if you are unsure about it, you go and talk to them about it. You bring it up. You did this, it looked like that. Is that what it was? Listen to the answer, you deal with it reasonably. Why is charitable interpretation? A non-neglectful overlooking. You overlook stuff. You don't overlook stuff in such a way that you just let everything stand, right? There's lots of awful that has to be confronted. So what can you overlook? Are you the person that goes and nitpicks at everything? Do you go in disorder, right? Somebody's swallowing camels and you start to strain at gnats and go, no, 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 deal with the camel first. Don't ignore them. Don't ignore them, but go after the camel. Let's do that. So this idea of you are... Overlooking. There's offenses and you overlook them wisely. Not to avoid conflict, but in order to deal with the right conflicts in the right order. Next, the idea of a wise quickness and seriousness at forgiving. You don't quickly forgive without repentance. You don't quickly forgive without repentance. That's a commitment to forgive that's a stumbling block for yourself. The other person did something wrong and you forgive them without them having gone through repentance you're just going to grind that that's going to be an internal source of murmuring that is not what we're commanded to do you can overlook things not a big deal okay great overlook it but if it's something that needs to be dealt with needs to be confronted you can't overlook it you're offended by it you've tried to overlook it you can't it's still there you bring it up and you're quick to forgive when a proper repentance has been given And there's a seriousness at that. To remember the promises of forgiveness. To not dwell on it. Not bring it back up. Not spread it to other people. Not let it stop you from doing your work in the covenant spheres you united in. A seriousness about forgiveness. So that's the idea of being full of mercy. And that would also manifest itself in terms of the mercy ministry. Being quick to serve to help people who are in need. Even sometimes if It's their own fault. And then they repent of it. and They want to help out. And so this idea of mercy ministry. So forgiveness, charitable interpretation, overlooking, helping people who are falling down. Those are manifestations of mercy. And if that comes out of you, that demonstrates a fullness of mercy in you. Being without partiality. Remember we talked about this uh, idea of partiality, the recognition of faces, showing the ability to deal with people according to the law, rather than according to some sort of fond admiration or prejudice. It's a judiciousness, going through process for judgment according to law, not partial censuring or fond admiration or skipping process by impatience. That's what this looks like. Does this person hear somebody else out? Or do they plug their ears to a just defense? Being without hypocrisy. And these, these words are both interesting. One is uh, the root at the end for both words is kreton, which is judgment. Okay? And the first one is dia, which is like through judgment. So it's like, it's like you're, you're taking like the highway, the bypass to get through the town. You're, you're, going, you're going through judgment. You're like, how can I get through this judgment fast? Right? That's what the partiality is. You're like, I'd like to avoid the process. I don't want to get on surface streets. I don't like, like stoplights. So can I just take a highway through the process of judgment and avoid the process? Right? That's, what, that's what the partiality is. Okay? And then the hypo-hypocrite, you see the crit is, is that same word. This the idea of judgment okay? the hypocrite, the hypocrite is the, they're under something right? The hypocrite is the, the, the actor that's under a mask in Greek but it's the idea of a, a judgment that is um, you're hiding under a mask right? so the being without hypocrisy is not putting on a mask to get false judgments you're willing to apply the same standard to yourself as to others you don't claim to be someone you're not You give evidence of integrity. When you say that's wrong, see somebody else do it, somebody brings it to you, and you go, yeah, it was wrong when I did it too. It doesn't require perfection. Being, Being a sinner is not the same as being a hypocrite in the strict sense. But that idea of a willingness to apply standards to self. You think about King David when Nathan the prophet came to him. Nathan the prophet heard, knew about from God the fact that David had stolen Uriah the Hittite's wife and had sent Uriah the Hittite off to get murdered. He brings this story of the man with a single sheep and the idea that a man with lots of sheep stole the sheep and ate it. David's response is he gets furious and says, that man needs to die. Nathan says, you're the man. David's response isn't to go, well, there are contextual things that make it so it was different. (laughs) It doesn't apply to me. He goes, tear the shirt, fall on knees, repent. He applies it to himself. There's no self justification, no cover up, there's not a blame shifting. You get Psalm 51 out of the thing. That is the manifestation of his integrity after the confrontation. He was hypocritical at first, covered it up. And then the rebuke came, and there's this repentance. Now, ordinarily that sin, murder and adultery, that would justify taking him from office and executing him. God granted him a reprieve, kept him in office, and made it so he couldn't be killed. Special judgment of God. His decision. Lord gives, Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But this idea in general of applying the law equally, David's. Confession and heart attitude upon the confrontation is to recognize that he deserves hell, he deserves death, he deserves to be removed from office, he deserves dishonor. So that kind of manifestation, when there's confrontation, proper repentance, and not an active covering up of things. So David displayed hypocrisy and cover up at the beginning. When he was confronted, he showed integrity. And so we have... Both examples in the same man, separated by a short period of time. Now, if we have these things, these markers that you look for, that are markers of peaceableness, then that displays that here is a person that will exercise meekness, gentleness, self-control with power. We should not have the attitude of Korah hating all power. God gives authority to people. He gives power to people. He gives the sword. He gives keys. He gives the rod. And he gives individuals liberty. And the desire to take power from everybody. To regulate everybody's individual liberty into non-existence. To make households not have the rod and not have property that they can give across generations. To make the church into... Every church that exercises authority is a cult and every state that punishes any sort of crime is tyrannical, that attitude is not a biblical attitude. We need to recognize lawful authority, desire it, and rejoice when the righteous enter office. So we look for zealous men and peaceable men. And if we can have the, the, the rule of zealous and peaceable men then the fruit of righteousness will be sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of righteousness will be sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Enjoyment of the fruit of righteousness on both an individual and corporate level comes by sowing in peace by peacemakers. So in your own life, are you sowing peace? Are you making peace? Are you desirous to see peace, blessedness. So what's the fruit of righteousness? The fruit of righteousness is the enjoyment of peace. That's the So you have peace by sowing peace in a peaceable way. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. The fruit of righteousness is the enjoyment of peace. You, you have a reduction of strife. And you also have blessedness, general blessedness, the removal of curse. That's done by sowing in peace. Sowing in such a way, you, you sow in such a way as to be peaceable. The work of, of making peace. You seek to resolve conflicts. You seek to bring the word. You, you seek to... Confront people in sin with zeal in a peaceable way so as to remove that sin so there can be greater peace. These are the things. There's a confrontation in a peaceable way. A happy warrior and the warrior who knows when to take the sword out and when to not. There's an interesting effect of carrying a weapon or learning a martial art. You feel less flight or fight response, you have a greater sense of responsibility. And so there's a willingness to confront in ways that you might not previously have been willing to do so. It's funny, if you've never carried a gun in public before, you know, there's this ritual, you, know, you, you get a holster, it's an open carry holster, put a gun in it, go to Walmart. The experience is an interesting experience, just walking around, yeah, I think I could stop a bad gun. The effect is an interesting psychological experience. And from there, you start to go, I I don't want my gun to be visible, possibly, because, you know, somebody might target me or whatever. You start to think about these things, right? And so you you start to make decisions. But the point is, you start to think, I could do something. I have power here. I have the capacity to do something. Previously, I didn't. And so a martial art or a weapon, they have that kind of effect. Self-control and wisdom and the desire to make and spread peace have that same sort of impact. Zeal with peaceableness. You want to engage. You want to solve problems. You want to overcome evil. And you want to do it peaceably. You want to generate peace. Now, this gets manifest in a more full way in 1 Timothy. Okay, We've looked at that text a lot. We're going to look at it again because it's a key text. Man, this is a key text for you. And we're going to go down we're going to look at again the wives. This is given to us. 1 Timothy is a short book with a bunch of faithful sayings. This is a book that's a catechetical book To help men to be ready to be leaders. And to help women to be queens to kings. That's what it is. It's a very short book that teaches you how to rule. It teaches you about good order. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires an office. He desires a good work. Right? Authority is for service. Authority is for service. A bishop then must be blameless. We've talked about blamelessness, haven't we? The husband of one wife, a one-woman man. He's, with the self. He's able to control his sexual desire. He's able to be faithful. He's able to be holy unto his wife. He's able to be temperate. If you read this, uh, if you read this in the New King James, and you just like took it very literally, it would sound like it's really important that elders not be drunk. There you go, temperate. Sober minded. We have uh, not given to wine. And then we have, uh, yeah, you get that and you go, wow, it's a lot of references to, to not getting drunk. Okay, it's fine. It's true. Don't get drunk. If you're an elder, in general, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. Bad to get drunk. That's not the actual emphasis. The emphasis is nephalion, which is translated temperate, means to be serious minded. Sophrona, which is translated sober-minded, means to be wise or prudent. And to have good behavior, which sounds sort of like be a good boy, is to be well-ordered. To be well-ordered. Okay, so those are the three beginning things there in terms of, kind of general attitudes. There's blamelessness, there's the one-woman man, but then you get into serious-minded, wise, and well-ordered. Serious-minded, wise, and well-ordered. Hospitable, able to teach. And then you have this list of other things that are examples of self-control, right? Not a lover of pleasure, not given to wine. Not violent, not a lover of power. Not greedy for money, so you're not covetous, you're not a lover of money. Gentle, that's that epiak word again. Not quarrelsome, they're so not a brawler. Not covetous, and this is really not a lover of money, not a lover of silver, is the literal Greek. One who rules his own house well, and then we have examples of how you rule your house well. Having your children in submission with all reverence. In other words, it's, uh, they're submitting and they're pious. Is actually like, helped to make it a little more clear. Uh, and then there's this sort of parenthetical. Because if you can't rule your own house, you're not going to be able to rule the church, the, the house of God. Not a novice. You need at least a year of displaying this stuff. You know, Paul, people go, well, Paul was chosen like, right away, made an apostle. And then he was trained by Jesus for 14 years. And then, you have the apostles, right? They were chosen to be apostles, and they were required to follow around Jesus so he could, like, rebuke them all the time for three years. Have you ever been around anybody? You think they rebuke you a lot? Hang out with Jesus. He's going to rebuke you a lot. He's going to rebuke you a lot. Three years with Jesus. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, you fall into the same condemnation as the devil. The general tendency uh, for the training for Levites was from age 20 to 25, five years of training. For the priest, from 25 to 30, five years of training. You have this idea the Levites are replaced with deacons, the priests are replaced with elders. And so we have this idea of training that should occur. Not a novice. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Outside of the house. Not outside of the church. Who cares what they think? Not outside of the church. It's not outside of the local church. That's just contextually flying something in that wasn't there. We're talking about the household. Outside of the household. So we get into deacons. We have a list of stuff and we get to the deacons' wives. Deacons are basically required to do the exact same things except teaching well is not required of them. Okay. They're not teachers. That's not their office. But they need to hold to the mystery of the faith and a good conscience. They need to hold to the confessed faith. So how about their wives? So women, your turn. Wives. Their wives. Verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent. The word is simnos. You could be pious or dignified. You show outward holiness and honor. Outward holiness and honor. Not slanderers, the, root, the, the word there in the Greek is diabolos, so not false accusers, not gossips. And that's the, that word, diabolus. you know, you have a devil, and that's because the devil is an accuser, right? So if you want to act like demons, go falsely accusing people. Destroy people's reputations. Reputations worth more than money. You wouldn't steal from their house, don't slander them. People spend a lot of money to get a good reputation. It's called branding. Now, we look at the next thing, temperate. That's that same word as above, nephalous, serious-minded. Women, you're called to be pious with outward honor. You are called to be careful with your tongues, to not falsely accuse or gossip. You are called to be serious-minded. And you are called, and it says faithful in all things, but really it's believing all things. It's, it's the word faith, and you could translate it as faithful, but the point is that the wife of a deacon needs to hold to the confessed faith. She needs to uphold the covenanted uniformity. She needs to not object to the confessional standard of the church. She needs to confess it. So she's believing in a mature way. She is pious and honorable. She is serious-minded, and she is not a false accuser, not a gossip. That woman can powerfully support a king. That woman can powerfully work with a deacon or an elder, to accomplish great things in the church the absence of any one of them if she doesn't hold to the confessed faith in hospitality she's going to undermine the teaching of the husband if she is not somebody who is serious minded she is going to undermine the ability to get serious work done if she is a gossip who's going to go to that deacon or that elder to get any sort of counsel yeah, okay I'll talk to you about this but don't talk to your wife okay that's gonna work. that's going to work out real great that marriage is going to be strong, or everything goes everywhere. And then, the idea of being pious and dignified so that there's this feminine grace on display. That right there, a feminine piety, a graciousness of a woman on display. If you work with your man, women, and support in these ways... Initially entering into the office of deacon, you know what happens with the deacon? They get good standing. They get honor in the community, in the covenant community. And they get great boldness in the faith. The number one complaint of Christian wives is, my husband doesn't lead. You want him to lead? Do this. Help him to have public honor. And you will see him have great boldness in the faith. And he will get honor. He'll get good standing. And that good standing allows him to have good testimony, which is required, by the way, for the office of elder. And that boldness will help him to speak the truth that he can contradict those, he can, he can rebuke those who contradict. He can teach well. That boldness will have him, help him have the courage to teach publicly. The office of deacon is designed to help men to be ready for higher office. It's Designed for it. So, the best way to get this service, for example, to go into the eldership, right, is actually to seek out mercy ministry in the diaconal office. It's designed as a stepping stone. That's what it's designed for. That's what James is teaching. He's teaching in a general sense, but this is an obvious application. And Paul's teaching the same thing. Now, this section that we just looked at in chapter 3 verses 12 through 18 it is the chiastic counterpart of chapter 1 verses 21 to 27 so what we looked at just now verses 13 to 18 is about right and wrong responses to wisdom how to discern between worldly and godly wisdom Verses 21-27, to 27, which we already studied, so I'm not going to go through it in detail. I'm just going to fly over it, and I've got some notes here that are reminders of things. This is about right responses to wisdom in terms of a credible profession versus a vain profession. And they relate. You will see certain themes that hit again. Let's fly over it, and then we'll wrap up. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. A meekness of wisdom, can I remind you? Which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Kind of like be doers of the word and not speakers only, right? Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. The natural man versus natural wisdom, right? The worldly wisdom. Natural man, natural wisdom. Spiritual man, spiritual wisdom. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, the idea of perfection of the law, last time we went through here, we went through question 99 of the larger catechism. So I reprinted it for you. And if you aren't willing to seriously consider this page 6 stuff, For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. If you're not willing to carefully study this, you're not serious about trying to meditate on the law. Don't pretend. Just don't pretend. This this list of rules about how to think about the law of God is meant to be a rubric for you to start seriously meditating on the law of God. That's why it's written out. Think of the pains that a hundred and something person council talking about a rubric for interpreting the law went through. Okay, The Westminster Assembly put an effort into getting this together for you so that you can have principles for reading and thinking about the law of God. So ask yourself, are these things true or not? The proof texts are fantastic. So the idea that the law is perfect requires full conformity in the whole man, entire obedience forever, the utmost perfection in every duty and forbids the least degree of every sin. True. It's spiritual. It touches the powers of the soul as well as words, works, and gestures. The same duty can be required in multiple commandments. The same sin can be forbidden in multiple commandments. These are things that help us to see the way the law interacts. Now, we should look at things and see how the law of God is sufficient to cover the whole of life. Every time there's a positive duty, it forbids certain sins. Every time there's a forbidding of certain sins, it gives a contrary duty. Seeing that law as having A, non-A components. That way it relates to itself there. If there's a threatening, there's a connected promise. If there's a promise, there's a connected threatening. Never do anything God forbids. What God commands is always our duty, but you can't do every duty at every moment. So you've got to Go from duty to duty. The law gives us categories, heads of doctrines, kinds. It allows us to to see also the relationship of causes, means, occasions, and appearances and provocations to what type of sin it would provoke. Right? So if you use authority and provoke wrath, guess what you're doing? You're causing somebody else to potentially break the Sixth Commandment. Violations of the Fifth Commandment can result in provocations of the Sixth Commandment. You see the relationship. You read through things, and you see the relationship of the law by having a sense of these rules. We need to be careful to help others To avoid performing sin. Help others to positively keep their duties. We need to not partake in sin with other people. We need to be helpful to them. These are all principles of the law. This is all laid out for us, and it's got proof texts. That's the perfection of the law for us. So, verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So we have useless religion and we have useless wisdom. Useless religion is man-made, false, world-flesh, devil, religion. Useless wisdom is man-made, false, world-flesh, devil, wisdom. Pure and undefiled religion and pure and undefiled wisdom. Didn't we just talk about the purity of wisdom? It's first pure. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That unspottedness from the world is a manifestation of holiness, not getting mixed with, not getting dirty with, not getting filthy with. So that right there, this idea of a holiness it's the religion. So you see the overlap of themes between these sections. All right, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. We ask that you would cause us to take seriously the ways in which we fall short. We are all breakers of your law. We ask that you would have mercy upon us sinners. Father, we ask that you would transform us and renew us after the image of Christ. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.